Welcome back to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. We're recording on Tuesday, the 1st of March, and we're doing things a little differently this week. I'll be interviewing my co-host, the former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. We have a desire to see our children alive. I think it's a fair one. The events playing out in Europe since February 24th, when Vladimir Putin made the decision to order Russian forces to invade Ukraine, have stunned the international community. In one move, Putin has ripped up the rulebook, prompted a historic reversal of German defence policy, sparked an international boycott of Russian banks, businesses and organisations, and, quite possibly, reforged the spirit of the post-war liberal order. But the outcome is not yet certain. At this moment, Ukrainians are fighting to keep Russian forces from taking control of their major cities. President Zelensky, who has emerged as a national hero and wartime leader, has appealed to the EU and NATO to do more to support his nation as it faces down an existential threat. Sir Richard Dearlove has witnessed from up close Russia's evolution from the Soviet Union to the premiership of Vladimir Putin. But even he, like so many of us, he was taken by surprise by recent events in Ukraine. Sir Richard, how are you doing today? Well, I'm fine, but the world is a dangerous place and I'm feeling very upset about what's happening in in, uh, Ukraine. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. It seems like not too long ago we were both discussing the hypotheticals of Russia's posturing on the Russian side of the border with Ukraine. And I don't think anyone uh, was really expecting things to have unraveled quite so fast as they have done now. Well, I certainly got it wrong. Um, You know, I just had that instinctive feeling that Putin was sensible enough or rational enough not to carry out a full-scale invasion and that he would satisfy, you know, Russia's appetite for um, its Ukrainian ambitions by biting off a bit more of Donbass and then, you know, continuing to threaten and then probably using that coercion to drive a negotiation and get some sort of guarantee that, you know, NATO membership was might not have been totally denied, but unlikely. I mean, you can see the way things would have evolved. But, well, well clearly he's not acted rationally at all, and one can see that clearly now. Right. I mean, I, I, have, I have to say... I, I feel exactly the same way. I've, I was totally wrong. I was incredibly sceptical uh, of the idea that Putin was going to launch a large-scale invasion despite the, the troop build-ups on, on the border. I think if a lot of, a lot of people probably thought the worst that was going to happen was, as you, as you say, he maybe moved into the, the DNR, the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, but the idea of tanks rolling into Kyiv, I think... Is just extraordinary. But one one thing I wanted to ask you, Richard, is that given what we have seen on social media in recent days, we've had Russian soldiers texting their family, uh, saying that they were not told that they were being sent into Ukraine to carry out an invasion, that they thought that they were holding exercises. We are seeing reports of tanks and and vehicles being abandoned by the Russians because they've run out of petrol. We've seen so many cases uh, of what appears to be a failure of logistics when it comes to this Russian incursion. We've seen soldiers running out of food stocks as well as fuel. I mean, there have been a number of reports of what seems like really bungled uh, logistics in, in this military operation. So why, why do you think that is? Do you think it really was that this this invasion was a last minute decision by Putin that most of his his generals and those in command of the troops on the ground were not actually aware of? It's a difficult question to answer. I think they thought they would roll down the main routes to Kiev. There would be minimal resistance. They would have immediate control of the air 
um, that they would reach uh, the centre of the capital within 48 hours, decapitate the government, and it would be all over. Um, I find it hard to believe that they expected to be met by cheering crowds of Russian speakers. But the moment you get into serious conflict, uh, which happened, and uh, what's been extraordinary is the resilience of the Ukrainian armed forces. They've obviously fought like tigers. Um, and, you know, they've shown that determined lightly armed units, but with effective anti-tank weapons or, or weapons to put out armor, um, can destroy, you know, massive amounts of hardware and, and, and hold things up very, very badly. I think this question also of the extent to which, you know, the ordinary soldier, Ivan, you know, was briefed. Um, I mean, there has always been anecdotes about the Russian military in certain situations not really giving the foot soldiers a detailed briefing as to how the as to what the hell's going on, so that down to a certain officer level, they're in the picture. And I mean, in this instance, you know, there may have been a strong reason, you know, we're going across the border, we're going to liberate our Ukrainian brothers, this is more of an exercise than a war. Um, I, I find, but I, the whole thing is quite extraordinary. I've just been reading a piece online by Tim Collins, um, you know, the, one of our own um, retired but quite distinguished military commanders, saying that, you know, the incompetence of the tactics and the way that they've rolled forward, it's just quite staggering. Um, and I, I mean, mean, why do you think that is? Because we are clearly seeing Russia's army is, is apparently it is an, an artillery army above all. And so why have we seen a sort of a holding back of fire until now? It's clear that their ground forces have not been going full steam ahead. They have been advancing, but they've been advancing around cities, not through them. They have been encircling a lot of the major urban centres. And then you have this question of the Russian Air Force, this sort of missing Russian Air Force that was carpet bombing Syria and, you know, throwing down bunker buster bombs uh, in another part of the world. But given that the ground forces that Russia is sending deeper and deeper into Kiev don't seem to be getting much air support, what do you think, what is what is going on? What, what, what well, does this all mean? I, I mean, if you're going to liberate your Slav brothers... Uh, and that's the sort of basic narrative which has been fed maybe to a lot of the troops. I mean, to use heavy armour, to use overwhelming air power and to start completely knocking out towns and killing thousands of civilians, uh, which they would do if they use this uh, huge aggregation of firepower and thermobaric weapons and some of the other and these massive um, bombing capability I, I mean it'll just flatten the country um it, it, it it's completely counterproductive but i mean i think the problem is not having succeeded by you know driving down the road and winning a few skirmishes and decapitating the government in a rather a sort of surgical fashion means that, you know, Putin now has to decide whether they're going to up their game by literally using all this heavy weaponry. Um, I, I mean, and the other thing, it's all very well, you know, fighting tank battles in massive open countryside, like the tank battles of World War II. But once you are trying you're railing through the countryside without much resistance, but then trying to take urban areas with the civilian populations being armed. Um, I mean, a lot of these armoured units are going to be incredibly vulnerable uh, and there will be huge losses. Then there will be huge retaliation. I mean, the outlook at the moment, I think, uh, is quite terrifying. I, I'm not sure myself how this is going to play out and what's going to happen. I, I mean, the... the um, uh, Ukrainians are not going to not are not going to throw in their hand and and put their hands up and say it's all over. That just doesn't look 
look lightly. The other interesting thing is that the mere fact that this negotiation took forward um, took place at all on the border, um, which might you know indicate that the Russians understand that they are in a very vulnerable situation and that some sort of negotiated settlement now will get them out where they can claim victory and claim that they've achieved their objectives um, and that there should be a ceasefire which will you know stop the killing but um, by that seems to be unlikely you 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 said that it's it's hard for the Russian army to carry out an intensive bombing campaign on their Slavic brothers. Does that mean, do, do you think that could still happen? Do you think if they were ordered to do so, they, well, they would the raise danger, Ukraine to the ground? Well, I think the danger is if Putin isn't entirely rational, and you know, we can sort of speculate on what's wrong, um, there's going to be, uh, you know, a wish on his part to up the ante and, and get it done and not lose face, and we, we, which would mean much more violence. And, and the fact that it's going so badly for them, and it is going so badly, it's going so badly internationally, my God, you know, you've got Japan, uh, you've got Switzerland coming out and joining the embargo. You have got a complete change of policy in Germany, probably the most significant uh, security uh, development of the whole crisis. I mean, th th this must be, it, it, it must have been unimaginable to Russia that these things could have ha happened and developed. And then, you know, the, the, the freezing of their central bank reserves, the run on the cash machines. Um, and I, I'm sure that you know, social media will be doing its work internally in Russia, even if the official coverage is so, uh, I, I mean, they, they've adopted the, the, the Stalinist approach or the Hitlerite approach, where if you tell a lie, it might be as big a lie as, you know, don't tell a little lie, tell an absolute whopper. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's what they're engaged in doing at the moment. But it, it, it it's going from from bad to worse. And this, this column that's approaching uh, Kiev, I mean, I'm sure, or Kiev, as we now should call it, using the Ukrainian pronunciation, um, it doesn't look as to me as though, you know, it's stoppable, however courageous the Ukrainians are. I wanted to ask about that because that's something that has been incredibly surreal about this whole thing that we that the world twitter is watching this massive russian convoy that is anything from i think i've seen estimations of 17 miles to, to 40 miles long that's hunkering slowly towards kiev and everyone is saying bomb it bomb it why you know why aren't the ukrainians bombing this massive convoy before it gets to a before it gets to the capital city well, why, I why do you think, think we're all watching it lumbering slowly, getting closer and closer to Kiev, and nothing's happening to it? Because I don't think the Ukrainians have got much of their, I mean, how much of their air force are they likely to have left? I mean, it's, it's, there, are, there are certain real uh, mysteries. I mean, I, I don't quite understand, you know, why haven't the Russians got command of the airspace? Um, how many Ukrainian jets uh, are still flying, uh, how much you know, resources of the Ukrainians have got left. I mean, I'm sure that they have a strategy, they have a plan, you know, which will be to try to knock out you know, every third, fourth or fifth vehicle in this convoy so that the whole thing grinds to a halt, the roads are blocked. I mean, and then you have an even more vulnerable uh, aggregation of military vehicles. But it, it, it strikes me that the Ukrainians don't at the moment probably have the resources to attack it from the air or they would have done so. But that but that's crazy. I mean the Ukrainians have an air force, don't they? Yeah, they but how much, they can't... It, how much of it is actually still able to fly? I mean, given the amount of uh sort of ordnance that's been expended on the attacks on these airfields, um, you know, the runways will have been bombed or mined. Um you know, how many of these, uh, their attack jets are in hardened shelters or are they out, you know, in the open? I mean, it's quite difficult 
who understand what's what's going on. We don't, just don't have enough detail. We do know that the Ukrainians have asked Poland and other neighbouring EU countries for fighter jets. And I think the latest is that no one has yet agreed to <laughs> to give them any jets. Well, I mean, I think this is, you know, a huge ask and gets us into a very dangerous situation. Um, and, you know, if there is a formal, you know, NATO response on Ukrainian territory, you know, we're risking the start of a European or world war. Um, and I think that the caution that's been expressed by all NATO governments in this respect is, is, is quite correct. I mean, it's terribly difficult to sit there and watch the Ukrainians, you know, having to deal with this massive armoured onslaught. But, I mean, so far they've done in, incredibly well and, and and there have been clearly some extraordinary incidents where, for example, with British anti-tank weapons that they've got, which are clearly very effective, north of Kharkov, they knocked out a significant part of the 1st Guards Tank Regiment, which is one of these elite Russian units. Um, I mean, there's talk of them knocking out over 50 tanks. Um, but they must be running low uh, on supplies. And these supplies supposedly coming in from Germany, from Holland, from other countries. I mean, you've got to get them through a very large country to the theatre. They're vulnerable um, to air attack from the Russians. So, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure how effective <coughs> or how fast that resupply can be. Do you think Ukraine will be able to hold out and push back the Russians before it gets to a stage where the capital falls and, and, and Kharkiv falls? And do you think that Europe will allow that to happen? Well, I mean, one has to sort of begin to have questions in one's mind about the Russians' willingness. I mean, I'm talking about the, the troops on the ground now, the boots on the ground, their willingness to fight to the extent that they're going to have to fight the Ukrainians. Um, and... <clears throat> I mean, Russia has, you know, quite significant elite forces and, and, and they are formidable, like what's called the Spetsnaz. Um, and, and they will be using their Spetsnaz, but they're, they're not sort of, a, sort of sufficient in number or resources. They, they could certainly um, be useful, particularly once they get inside Kiev. Um, but the answer to your question is, I, I don't know. I'm sort of mystified by what's happening. And I, I think the Europeans have to sit, sit and watch and attempt to resupply to the extent that they're able to and express huge moral support. I mean, I can't square the circle of, of the West of Europe, of NATO, allowing Putin to invade and claim another country? Well, I think that, you know, the answer to that question is that he may succeed. But, but then, the precedent that that would set... Well, of course... That, it, you, we'd have to say goodbye to Taiwan. We'd have to say goodbye to so many other, you know, well, contested sure areas around the world. If sure Putin were to demonstrate that that sort of thing could be done. Yeah, but having, as it were taken the capital and technically put in a puppet government. Let, let, let's a sort of scenario where key members of the government flee to the west of the country. Uh, they are able to maintain you know, what we would regard as the legitimate government. There's a puppet government put in power. Um, you know, there is then going to be a massive, long-running insurgency, you know, which is going to um, be very, very costly for the Russians. And I think what you also have to consider then is what the medium to long-term effects are of sanctions on the Russian economy. I, I mean, the, 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 the sanctions are extreme, and there's no question about that. And they won't bite for, for several months, but they will bite. 
and there will be huge um, uh, cost to pay on the part of ordinary Russians. I mean, I was reading today, uh, you know, Apple Apple Pay, which Russians using on all their you know iPhones and things, ceased to function because Google and Apple Pay have closed down the system. Um, everybody is desperate to get hold of foreign currency because the rubles crashed. Um, there is no foreign currency probably left available in Russia. So already you have got huge sort of knock-on consequences. So there is no opportunity for Russian aircraft to fly west. The whole of European airspace is closed. Um, you know, their central bank reserves are going to be frozen. Um, the SWIFT payment system has been closed down. I mean, and, and, and. Um, and I, I think that the Chinese will be extremely wary because what they will take note of is the the unity of the West's reaction to this. And, you know, they will realize that if they did the same Taiwan, they're going to have to pay a similar price, if not a higher one. And I think what's happened with China in the last eight to 10 months, my sort of Chinese commentator friends have noticed this. China has, after Hong Kong and the new security legislation, um, the terrific bashing they've had over the Uyghurs, um, the sailing of uh, Australian, American, and British warships through the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait. Um, the Chinese have actually pulled in their horns and become a little more careful of their public image. And I don't think, you know, it's on Ch China's agenda is much more long term. And I think that the lesson of, of, of Ukraine at the moment will probably work the other way. Um, and it will make the Chinese more cautious. And they're not allies of Russia. They're just economic partners. There's a subtle difference. Yes, there was a funny statement that came the other day, was, wasn't there, from the Chinese foreign ministry where they said, we are... We are partners, not allies, or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, which was, which was, I thought, very, very striking. And I, someone, some very witty Twitter user, underneath that, that tweet uh, from, I think it was the Chinese Foreign Ministry, said, "That sounds a bit like sex, but no love." Uh, <laughs> but they, but it is an uneasy sort of relationship the Chinese oh, yeah. and the Russians have. Definitely, and the fact is, they didn't. They didn't actually support Russia in the Security Council. They abstained. Mm, yeah, that was uh, fascinating, and that, I thought. And that was quite extraordinary because they normally would. You would have expected them to support the Russians. And, and they've already made apparently a couple of statements which are quite equivocal on, on, on Ukraine. And um, I, I think they're going to be very careful, very cautious, and they're going to sit there and watch and see. And, and they will be noting the cost that Russia is having to pay. I mean, of course, China's a, a different prospect because of, it has much more powerful economy. And I mean, do, do bear in mind that the Russian economy is, uh, is, 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 I mean, it's only in a reasonable position at the moment. And I mean, this is one of the ironies. You have a crisis, the energy prices go up. Therefore, you know, Russia is getting more money for its oil and gas. But I mean, it is totally commodity dependent. It lacks foreign investment. The GDP, I think, as I said before, is the size of Italy. It doesn't have the resources to sustain a long term uh, sort of conflict with the West, um, you know, even an economic conflict. It, it, it will get become incredibly costly for Russia over time. And I mean, I just wonder, you know, how secure Putin will be. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that because you know, you say all, you, you give all these reasons for for why this is just going to be so costly for Russia over time, costly to the Russian people, costly to the oligarchs, costly to to businesses, and and, and everything. But all of that sort of doesn't matter unless something happens to change the leadership, right? I mean, people can starve, businesses can fail, 
all of you know all of those things can rumble on but it's not until there is something like a palace coup that takes putin out surely i mean do you he's he's so intransigent can you see him backing down or do you think he has to, has to be removed from power in order for things to go another way i mean i think over time as the situation deteriorates in russia i mean we're not dealing any longer with the Soviet Union. I mean, it, it is an authoritarian society, but it's been through significant evolution and change. And you can't entirely put the genie back in the box. I mean, social media is there. Um, and, you know, Russians, well, every Russian that I know of or have contact with and has spoken to, <coughs> admittedly, they're ones, you know, that is a, a pretty westernized, have said, you know, that this is a catastrophe and that actually all the people they know in Russia are saying exactly the same thing to them, but they can't express it publicly. I, I don't think that's a situation that could be sustained indefinitely. I think it's a situation which will be cumulative. And there will come a point, I mean, Khodorkovsky, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the... Um, uh, oligarch was saying that it'll take time, but you know this is probably the beginning of the end of Putin's regime, and that you know that it might be two years down the track, it might be less, but uh, it, it is the beginning of the end, and he he doesn't really see how you know the the effects of this cannot but uh, end Putin's regime at some point. But I mean, the man is 70 years old. I mean, his, his, he's not going to live forever. His, he's, he was surely heading towards the end of his tenure anyway, despite you know, the fact that he's been fixing the constitution and compelling the parliament to extend his, his remaining years in office. I mean, have the, who, who was his successor? You know, does he have a successor or does he have rivals that might take his place once, once he's gone? Well, I I don't think there's an obvious successor. And of course, that's one of the things that you do, you know, when you're an authoritarian leader, you make damn sure that you haven't got a close rival. And I think that they've all been sort of kept down and kept in their place. But I mean, this extraordinary, well, not interview, um, session where he had the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, down the end of the table, and he talked, he gave them supposedly these weird instructions which do not correspond with Russian nuclear doctrine, to, and, the, and the phraseology he used was all wrong. So it was a sort of, you know, semi-nuclear threat, and I mean, I'm sure that we, we know, I mean, from intelligence, whether their nuclear forces are on high alert or not. Um, um, you're, you're referring to his directive to, to mobilise. Yeah, it wasn't, the... it wasn't a directive. It was a sort of comment, and it was phrased in such a way that it doesn't correspond with doctrine. So I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how you explain that. But you know, it, the whole. I, I just, I can hardly believe that we're sitting here watching this happen, and of course, the the, the most significant change of all is the change in German defence policy. I mean, this, this is huge. Um, I mean, Germany, for years, you know, has been spending 1 1.3, 1 1.4, 1 1.2% of its GDP. It said it's going to instantly up to 2% or higher. Um, given the size of the German economy, that is a massive infusion of funds into their armed forces, which are in a complete mess because a lot of their equipment is in mothballed, it doesn't work properly, no spare parts. Um, uh, von der Leyen was, was a useless defence minister, uh, absolutely awful. Um, and, you know, Merkel was totally complacent about Russia <coughs> and, you know, German national security. <coughs> and, you know, she's created this situation, you know, where the German economy is almost totally dependent on Russian gas. So we, we're, we're, we're witnessing a, a, a seminal reordering of the security pieces in Western Europe on account of this, as it were, failure by previous German administrations who have just not 
taken any of this seriously, I'm afraid. I mean, this total reverse ferret that that Germany has has pulled has shocked everyone, I think. And there was some really interesting reporting in the German press uh, that said that Olaf Scholz actually didn't brief the government before he made that announcement of increasing German defence spending. He only briefed his very closest allies. Most of the government uh, and even and even his aides were not aware of that until he was delivering that address. And the Bundestag happened to react positively to to the news, and there were cheers in the chambers when he said this. But this was a sudden bold move for a brand new chancellor who has replaced someone who has been in power for more than 10 years and has a big legacy. It's encouraging, you know, are you a German chancellor or are you leader of the SPD? And he behaved as a German chancellor. And of course, you know, he's got a very bizarre political coalition, a rainbow coalition, which includes, you know, the Greens and and other rather... um, uh, sort of pacifist inclined. I mean, to call them pacifists too strong, but but sort of uh, not inclined towards uh, heavy defence expenditure. So I mean, I mean, I'm, I think he probably did the right thing, which was to maybe consult his inner group of advisors and then announce it in the Bundestag. And and he's probably, you know, we're looking at him now as a rather different. German Chancellor, because there were huge questions over him and his competence and what sort of leader he would be and whether he was a worthy successor to Merkel. But um, for me, this is the most um, important uh, event. And and I think for the Russians, this would be hugely um, uh, significant. And they they won't, the, the significance of that will not be lost on them. And everyone has been talking about this newfound European unity in this response. Uh, Everyone singing from the same hymn sheet, everyone falling into line with with sanctions, a number of European countries closing their airspace to, to Russia one by one. I mean, even countries like Switzerland starting to to impose sanctions and and getting in getting involved in uh, abandoning all principles of neutrality how long do you think that this european unity is going to last we've already seen hungary starting to pull back from some of its support uh, it was surprising to see, you know, countries like Cyprus, where a lot of Russian money is yeah. is parked, falling into line behind behind sanctions. Switzerland, meant, we, we we mentioned. How how long do do we think that these countries are going to stay united and on the side of Ukraine under what must be a lot of Russian pressure and domestic well, interests? Long, quite a long time, I think, because of the situation is so serious and they're confronted, you know, with a dilemma. And I I, I, I mean, I think part of the problem is that hitherto, I'd go as far as to say that the EU doesn't do geopolitics. I mean, it's really bad at uh, getting itself strategically aligned on big geopolitical questions. I mean, on, on, on smaller issues, a certain degree of success and coordination. I mean, this is something of a different proportion um, and a different uh, level of importance. And uh, I mean, it's quite encouraging and surprising, you know, to see the EU reacting in a coordinated fashion. Uh, I mean, it, it, it certainly, um, for me also, you know, shines the light on the how crazy the idea of, you know, European Defence Force is in, in terms of an EU defence initiative. And that, you know, really, we have to work through NATO, we have to work through national defence budgets to build European defence um, and we have the mechanisms there already. So why on earth should the EU, you know, try to reproduce them? And, and uh, I mean, obviously, its inability to respond militarily, uh, you know, is there for everyone to see. And it would be a waste of time for it to try. So, you know, Macron's ideas about European armies are for the birds. Forget all of that stuff. 
I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you have seen this, but there was an article that has been published on Ria Novosti, which was published by accident, it seems. Um, it was an article that was tagged with a publication date of February 26th, and it was celebrating a Russian victory and the collapse of the Ukrainian state within two days. Uh, the Russians, of course, moved in on the 24th. And this is an article that doesn't that was obviously never meant to be published given the events that actually took place, but clearly was written in advance of what was expected to be a very quick surgical Russian victory in Ukraine. And it reveals uh, really quite worrying uh, Russian sort of neo-imperialistic uh, tones. And, and the, the article wasn't written by Putin, it was written by an anonymous author, but it certainly does chime with Putin's ideology. And it gives us a bit of an insight. And I just wanted to read you a couple lines from, from this piece. It says, the construction of a new world order is accelerating and its contours are more and more clearly poking out through the unravelling fabric of the Anglo-Saxon globalisation. A multipolar world has become a reality. The rest of the world sees us perfectly well. This is a conflict between Russia and the West. This is a response to the geopolitical expansion of the Atlanticists. This is Russia recovering its historical space and place in the world. Putin has told the Russian people that this was about the Donetsk People's Republic. This was about the breakaway parts of you of Ukraine that want to be Russia Russian. Uh, the Russian government is not saying anything about tanks in in Kiev or or even Kharkiv uh, or anywhere else in Ukraine. They're pretending this is all happening in in the east of Ukraine. And then you have this state, uh, you know, state media uh, op-ed that is describing this as nothing to do with eastern Ukraine, but actually, uh, you know, a a big geopolitical reshaping of the world order. I mean. What do you make yeah. of that? Well, I'm aware of this article and, and, and uh, someone brought it to my attention this morning. And I think, you know, it, 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 it was meant to be, as it were, the song sheet from which you sung about the glorious victory in Ukraine. But of course, it hasn't quite transpired like that. But I think it gives one an insight into the sort of hyper-nationalist thinking of the people um, around Putin and their vision of a orthodox Christian Russia against the corrupt West. And uh, I mean, you can look at it from all sorts of perspectives, but I mean, it, 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 it's extraordinary how, you know, this sort of clique of former communists, and they a lot of them were in the intelligence and security community that now run Russia, um, you know, they, when, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, one of the first things that they embraced was the Russian Orthodox Church as part of their new identity. Um, uh, when I went to, to Russia way back, you know, in, in, in my former career, there they were all were sitting on the other side of the table with their Orthodox crosses in their buttonholes. Um, and, you know, there was, there was a huge sort of talk and attachment to, about Russian history and about the Russian identity and Peter the Great. And, uh, I mean, all of this was, 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 was part of them re-identifying, re-establishing themselves when they lost, as it were, their specific Soviet identity. Well, I mean... The, a group of Russian Orthodox clerics and senior Russian Orthodox clerics, they published a letter say, calling for an end to, to the war. Yeah, well, that's and, interesting. And, 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 call, and saying that the Ukrainians must be allowed to make their own choices. Well, I mean, that's very interesting because, you know, the, the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church has been very much under the thumb of the state. And um, has been, uh, you know, very much um, sort of projected by Putin as part, you know, of his vision for Russia. Um, but, you know, maybe now there is a certain amount of confidence and independence in elements of the church who 
realize that, you know, I mean, this is part of the problem. With I mean, bear in mind that the Orthodox Church's connections with Ukraine are fundamental in terms of uh, the, 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 the Christian origins of Kiev. Um, and I, I mean, when, when I, on my last visit to Russia, what the Russians now, I'm, I'm, I'm a keen painter and interested in oil painting. What do they give me? They gave me an oil painting of the Orthodox Cathedral in Kiev as a gift. I wasn't visiting Ukraine, I was visiting Moscow. So that shows you psychologically how many of them think about the place. So where do you think we go from here? I mean, Putin is clearly an extremely stubborn and intransigent man. And even if the West somehow manages to, with the Ukrainians, find some way of allowing Putin to climb down and go back to Moscow with some kind of a victory to, to, to sell uh, in order to save his, his own skin. I mean, do you think that that is something that is achievable or do you think he will not stop until Zelensky is either stood down in exchange for a cessation of hostilities. I mean, we have all kinds of wild cards. We have reports of Wagner mercenaries roaming, roaming the streets of Kiev uh, on some kind of mission to assassinate the president. We also have the Ukrainians now asking for EU membership. And what is the what is the EU going to do? There have been quite positive sounds from the European Parliament of individual lawmakers paying tribute to Zelensky and to the Ukrainians and shared values. And if, I mean, if they were to make the Ukraine a candidate country, surely that would be impossible for, for Putin to, to take standing down. So, I mean, what, what, what is the situation now? And, and what, what are the key sort of things you're going to be looking out for that can tell us what kind of direction this is going to, to take? Well, I think we're still in the fog of conflict, but I think it. I think it will depend first militarily on what happens on the ground, uh, and the Russians have to take Kiev uh, and other large cities. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be a, a, a long-running conflict. There's going to be a war, you know, which could last like conflict in the Balkans. It could last for months, uh, particularly if the West gets its act together and resupplies the Ukraine military in the west of the country, and there's an enclave there, which there could be. Um, I think it's too early to say, uh, except maybe... If things don't go so well for the Russians, there will be an extended negotiation uh, and some sort of ceasefire. And obviously one will be looking to see the withdrawal of Russian military units, but it's, it's hard to imagine that happening at the moment. Uh, I mean, this is why it's such a, uh, an incredible thing for Putin to have done, because as he's not succeeded in what his original plan was, you know, one is left with an incredible mess. And uh, I mean, look at other conflicts. I, I mean, you've got the residue of the Korean War, it's still unresolved. You've got the residue of the war between Greece and Turkey over Cyprus, still unresolved with the green line dividing the island. Um, I mean, once, you have had these, uh, well, really severe military conflicts. Uh, I, I mean, the remnants, are, uh, and they aren't problems necessarily to be solved, they become problems to be managed, and managed over long periods of time. And I, I, I think that's what's so worrying about the Ukrainian issue. It's very difficult to see how Russia gets itself out of this mess, even if it deposes the government. I mean, 
it, it, that government, their puppet, is never going to be accepted by the West. Uh, no way. Um, and, and they will have to fight a, a long-term insurgency. The Ukrainians will, will, will see to that. The last Kremlin puppet in, in, installed in, in power in Kiev was chased out of office and had to f- flee to Moscow. Well, it'll probably happen. It will. It could well happen again. And I, I mean, there's no way even the Russian military can hold down a country the size of Ukraine. It's bigger than Spain. It's got a population forty-five million. It's France and a good chunk of Germany put together. It's massive. Um, and if the whole population, which seems to be the case, is united against the aggressor, what chance have the Russians got, even if they take the capital city? What, what on earth is going to happen next? The I question mean, is, is that, is that rationale going to occur to Putin? Well, it certainly occur, I mean, this is where it will certainly occur to the Russian military. You know, the, remember that, you know, it's the Russian soldier that's got to do the fighting. Um, and this isn't fighting the Nazis or the fascists, even though, you know, they like to tell us that it is. <laughs> fighting their own, their own relatives. I mean, you know, there are so many families intermarried. Um, it, 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 it's a little bit like us invading Scotland. I mean, I'm trying to think of, a, you know, an, an emotional equivalent that we can understand. I mean, which English family doesn't have a Scottish, you know, a, a, some sort of Scottish connection, some sort of Scottish ancestry? And I, 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 I can't produce a magic answer. Um, uh, what can, do you think the West should do? Do you think the West should step it up or well, be I think extremely we, cautious? I think we need to be cautious, but I think that we should continue to resupply the Ukrainian military that we should give them financial and economic support, and um, and lethal aid and lethal aid. Oh yes, definitely. Um, I, I mean that's already arriving. That's clearly made a big difference. And you know, if you're fighting a highly mechanized military, uh, these modern weapons uh, give you huge advantage, particularly if you're not in open countryside. Well, when we speak in a week's time, I wonder what the situation will be and how the map will will have changed. Well, I, I, I won. No, well, I wonder too. And I, you know, I, I think one has to think about the suffering of the Ukrainian population who are in for a very, very tough time indeed. Because I think that you know they the Russians may try just to besiege the city and starve the Ukrainians out. Um, One last question, actually. Ukraine has applied for emergency uh, accession to the EU, and there are a number of countries that are supporting it in in terms of granting it candidate status. What do you make of that? Do you think the EU will entertain seriously the idea of Ukraine joining, uh, maybe first as a candidate, maybe even yeah, as a I think, member? I think, that, I think that's possible. I mean, I think, okay, the Russians would hate it, but it's not NATO. I mean, bear in mind that, you know, this is an economic alliance, a trading alliance, essentially. Um and it, 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 it's possible that that is the answer to, you know, Ukraine's long-term future. It would be an EU member, but not a NATO member. Um, and in a way, you've got the opposite situation with Turkey, which is a NATO member, but not an EU member. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, you know, the EU's ambitions to do geopolitics are pretty limited uh, and are going to be, I think, I wonder whether they'll be strengthened by this experience. I, I'm not sure about that. It's very hard, you know, given the, the diversity of views within the EU for it to operate geopolitically. It hasn't been successful. And I mean, for me, that's one of the strongest 
you know, reasons for Brexit that we can now pursue an independent foreign policy and we're not hobbled um, by the sort of inadequacy of European foreign policy. Anyway, um, we'll we'll have to see what happens. Well, the next 48 hours is going to be pretty crucial, I think, when we'll have an idea how things are going to unfold in the next 48 hours. Do you you want to quickly just touch on how on how the Ukrainians are, are certainly sort of winning the propaganda war at, at this at this stage. I mean, you've got Zelensky, his 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 sort of his portrayal and, and how he's handled himself has clearly won him a legion of admirers around the world. He's he's clearly providing a huge sense of morale, staying in Ukraine and wearing his army fatigues. And then you have things like the ghost of Kiev, this incredible allegedly Ukrainian fighter pilot who's uh, who who killed who who killed six Russian pilots, took down six jets, constitu- constituting uh, the first ace in Europe since the Second World War, and the the Snake Island Ukrainians who told the the Russian warship to go f yourself, and all of these sort of becoming qu- quickly becoming ur- urban warfare legends, which are really boosting morale. I mean, the Russians aren't aren't really getting any of that. Yeah, it's been extraordinary. I was at an I, I was at an air show um, as a guest of one of these aviation companies um, in Fairford in Gloucestershire, which happens alternative years when Farnborough doesn't. And there was a very very memorable uh, display by a Ukrainian MiG twenty seven with one of their top pilots. And it was the most extraordinary aerobatics display I've ever seen. So I've got a feeling this guy probably is the ghost of <laughs> the ghost of Kiev. And he may exist because I, I you know, I, I sat we sat there watching this guy flying this aircraft and it was absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> But I mean, I think it's really interesting that we are seeing this kind of David and Goliath situ- situation with the Ukrainians uh, against the, the Russians, and it shows how important morale is. And this yeah. comes, you know, half a year after uh, the takeover of Kabul and Afghanistan by the Taliban. And there was a lot of discussion of how the Afghan army had zero morale yeah. and they had a- their, their president fleeing just before the capital city was taken. And we have the opposite in yeah. Volodymyr yeah. Zelensky. Well, he's been absolutely extraordinary. And of course, he is a professional actor, which I think if you know how to harness that skill like Ronald Reagan, you know, it can be as enormously charismatic, but he's really been um, uh, an absolute inspiration, I think, you know, beyond his country. Uh, and I mean, Putin must be gnashing his teeth because his, his image has gone in the other direction. So, you know. I mean, he's the voice, he's the Ukrainian voice of Paddington. <laughs> and he won Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars or the, their version of Strictly yeah, Come Dancing. I mean, you can't compete with that. No, can you, you really can't. <laughs> Well, it's clear that the the coming days and the weeks are going to be critical for for seeing how things develop. So, Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's really, really great to hear your thoughts uh, on what has been an incredibly fast-moving and developing situation in Ukraine. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. I think we all feel very, very strongly about this issue. And, uh, you know, we sit here with anticipation, seeing how it will play out over the next, you know, week or two. Anyway, thanks a lot, Julia. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, Richard. Take care. Okay. All the best. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.